This episode of Pet Resource Radio is sponsored by Hills. At Hills, their decades of science and research guide the company in creating nutrition that's a step ahead, so pets and pet parents can enjoy every day together. As the U.S.'s number one veterinarian-recommended pet food brand, Knowledge is Hills' first ingredient, with more than 220 veterinarians, Ph.D. nutritionists, and food scientists working to develop breakthrough innovations in pet health. Hills Prescription Diet, Therapeutic Nutrition, plus the company's everyday foods, Hills Science Diet, Hills Healthy Advantage, and Hills Bioactive Recipe are sold at vet clinics and pet specialty retailers worldwide. For more information about Hills, their products, or their forward-thinking approach to nutrition, visit them at hillspet.com or hillsvet.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Our efforts are also supported by La Mega KC, Kansas City Spanish radio station, Hot 103 Jams, KPRS, KC's number one station for hip-hop and R&B, and of course, our good friends at 1KC Radio. Check them out at 100.1 in the KC area, or visit them online at 1kcradio.org. We're talking with Lauren Loney and Jennifer Applebaum about pet fees for renters on this episode of Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Sierra Howe. We're coming to you from the headquarters of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, a nonprofit dedicated to keeping pets and people together through supportive services. We've got a long, wide-ranging interview today about the issue of the fees charged to pet owners who rent an apartment or home, so no pet news or anything like that. So let's jump right in. Sixty percent of households in the United States contain at least one pet, but pet ownership isn't a protected status under the Fair Housing Act, so landlords aren't obligated to make their properties pet-friendly. The ones that do often charge extra fees, require a deposit, and or charge pet rent. Now, what effect does this have on pet owners who are struggling anyway, especially when housing issues are one of the big reasons that animals are relinquished to shelters? A new paper in the journal Frontiers in Veterinary Science titled Pet Friendly for Whom? An Analysis of Pet Fees in Texas Rental Housing aims to answer that question or at least figure out how we can ask the questions better. We've got two of the authors on the paper on the show with us today. Jennifer Applebaum is a PhD student in sociology and NIH predoctoral fellow at the University of Florida. Lauren Loney is the Texas State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Lauren, Jennifer, welcome to Pet Resource Radio. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, David. So when we're when we're talking about pet fees, there are a few different things that we're looking at. What what types of charges are generally incurred by pet owners? Sure, Lauren, do you want to take this one? Sure. Um, so in, in rental housing in particular, what we're really talking about are um, pet deposits, which are refundable, uh, which uh, are not the, the topic of this existing research. And then there are two types of non-refundable fees, which are upfront non-refundable fees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are monthly, typically, or there can be monthly pet rents. Um, other things that could be part of a lease are uh, fines for violating lease laws or lease rules. Right. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about the methodology of this paper. Um, how, how did it come together and, and why look at Texas specifically? We all came together because, well, this was actually born out of um, Lauren's policy work. And she and Kevin had kind of started this conversation in terms of how to um, 
you know, have data driven information mm-hmm. about what, you know, uh, how these fees impact the owners. Um, and I am a sociologist and so I'm generally very interested in inequality and pet keeping and, um, and I'm especially interested, um, in housing inequality and how, uh, that impacts, how that's impacted by pet ownership. Um, and so I was, uh, brought in kind of as like the, one of the academics on this, um, to, use uh, Kevin's like data wizardry um, because he developed the, yeah, he's, he's amazing. He developed the methodology by, um, he wrote like this really cool Python code that I don't totally understand where he um, was, was able to um, pull, you know, massive amounts of, of apartment listings um, from apartments.com. And then we were able to um, link that with census data to um, systematically kind of get spatial relationships about the um, the trends or patterns in pet fees and how that relates to um, different patterns of demo- demographic patterns in in different um, areas within Texas. And so this is this was focused on Texas because it was you know essentially started by Lauren and Kevin together. And both in Texas, and you know, Lauren does all this policy work in Texas, and so um, I hope to expand beyond Texas myself. Um, but that's kind of why it was um, why I started there. Gotcha. Lauren, do you want to add to that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's spot on, Jenny, and just a little bit <laughs> of extra information about the policy piece of this. Um, so I work at the Texas Legislature every session on a myriad of animal-related issues. And in uh, this past session, which started in January of 2021, we had a legislator who proactively, at the request of one of his constituents, file a bill specifically looking at pet rent and non-refundable pet fees and Uh, deposits in Texas. Kevin and I got started because I was putting, I wanted to put together and have some data to support this bill. And after Kevin, who Jennifer is totally right, is a wizard (laughs) at uh, data mining. After we started to see some of these egregious, pet fees, we thought, wow, we need to really take a deeper dive and really understand the landscape of what these fees and rents look like in Texas so that when we have another opportunity to engage legislatively, we have real data to justify what it is that we're asking for. Right. Um, And so, and then um, you know, I'm not a researcher, so I then very heavily relied on on uh, the other authors on the paper to really pull this together into a full research paper. So it really was this beautiful, like, merging of mm-hmm. policy and research interest, mm-hmm. and I, I just thought it was fantastic. So, all right, when we look at it, who do pet fees hurt exactly? What what kind of general trends do we see when we look at the data? What we found is that when we're talking about um, pet fees as a proportion um, of what a typical community member would make um, for their yearly income, we find that the pet fees that they're paying for on their rental housing um, is they're they're disproportionately uh, expensive within communities of color. And low-income communities, gotcha. and so essentially, they 
communities of color and low-income communities pay disproportionately higher fees as a function of their income to keep pets in their apartments. What patterns do we see among racial lines with regard to animal welfare in general? Mm. Um, so, I know, Lauren, sorry, if you if you have anything to add to this, please jump in. But um, yeah. there's there's certainly some, some research and some broader concern about discrimination mm-hmm. in animal welfare in terms of um, patterns of who is punished for animal welfare concerns, um, who receives the most animal control involvement, who gets to keep their pet, who, you know, gets to have pit bulls, who doesn't get to have pit bulls, right. um, or, you know, if you will, uh, where essentially the breeds breed specific legislation is enforced where maybe it's not enforced. <laughs> um, and um, so generally there, there isn't a whole lot of research, but this is certainly a growing concern and area of, um, of action within the animal welfare community, um, which I think needs a lot, a lot more. Um, and I'm, I, I'm encouraged by the, um, the interest in kind of systematically um, researching these issues and, and seeing how potentially some animal control policies may, you know, perpetuate some of the stereotypes that some people may hold about who, who keeps pets in certain ways, what's an acceptable way to keep a pet, what animal welfare really even means, you know? Um, and so, so I think um, there it's a problem within animal welfare, but it's a problem more broadly in our society. So it's no surprise that it, is in animal welfare too, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, I I just, the only thing that I would add, because I think that that's right, is mm-hmm. I just want to sort of reemphasize that the racial discrimination that is seen in the animal welfare movement and criminalizing policies versus mm-hmm. resource provision as a policy, mm-hmm. these are all part of structural racism and inequality mm-hmm. within our legal framework that mm-hmm. extends well beyond animal welfare, like, like Jennifer just said. And, you know, the other thing that I think is really important is the relationship between poverty and pets and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, sheltering and, and, and shelter intervention is the name of the game, but I think it's also important to recognize that millions of pets live with families that live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if we truly want to, improve the outcome of animals, you know, in our communities, then we have to address those systems that are creating perpetual Mm -hmm. and generational poverty for people, you know, as well. So um, Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it really is a very clear relationship between mitigating, reducing, fighting, pushing back against structural inequality and racism Mm -hmm. for humans has a direct and positive impact on the animals that are living, uh, you know, with families across the country that are living in poverty and in racially, you know, segregated uh, cities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was perusing sites with uh, information for landlords, it it wasn't uncommon to see pet fees framed as a a way to make extra money from a tenant because, um, as you say in the paper, uh, pet owners tend to stay longer and expect to pay mm-hmm. extra money for the the privilege of having a pet, as opposed to being described as a way to protect and maintain property. Um, how necessary mm-hmm. are these kinds of fees? <laughs> 
That's a, that's a great question. So, um, I will say that I think that it's very reasonable for a landlord to charge some sort of refundable deposit, right? Just like we have with security deposits, a reasonable security deposit. Every state has laws around what security deposits can look like. Um, and also have, have, have laws that, although not always enforced properly, about what the landlord has to show to prove why they're keeping any of that deposit money, yeah. uh, which does give some level of protection to tenants, although we know that that is abused regularly. Right. Um, I believe that, and you know, I think that we're probably all on the same page here, but speaking for myself, um, upfront non-refundable pet fees and pet rents are nothing more than an income stream for landlords. Right. There is no state has a requirement that that money be used to address pet related upkeep or repairs. Wow. There's no requirements for how that money is used. It doesn't have to be kept in a separate account like a deposit does. Mm-hmm. It is just an income stream. So I would argue that these fees are completely unnecessary except to the extent that landlords are using them as a way uh, to make money off of pet owners. Yeah, that's definitely how I feel about it. I, I you know, in here in Kansas City, um, Mac Properties is a national company that's been buying up property all over Midtown. Um, I looked up mm-hmm. there. I looked up their fees. They charge in Kansas City. They charge a one-time fee of two hundred dollars per pet, as well as fifteen dollars per month per pet. Um, that's a yearly expense of three hundred eighty dollars, which is essentially a, a barrier to entry if you want to own a pet. They charge even more in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. $300 per pet um, up front and then $20 per pet per month after that. So a total of $540 for one pet. Um, states are allowed mm-hmm. to each have their own laws with regard to pet fees. So what is the maximum that a landlord can charge in Texas uh, for their ability to rent with their pet? Well, there, uh, the, there is no maximum. So Texas doesn't have, uh, there are no laws related to non-refundable uh, fees or pet rents. Um, so essentially they can charge as much as they feel like the market will allow. Um, and Jen- Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, mm-hmm. I think that we've seen as low as $50 up front and up to as high as $800 up front. So there's yeah. a massive range there. Um, it's, mm-hmm. that's totally driven by, uh, local markets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we think that some of the issue here? With this, with this issue of, of pet fees, is simply a matter of pets being considered property from a legal standpoint rather than family. Lauren probably has a, a very good response to this in terms of a legal standpoint. Um, that's not my wheelhouse personally, but um, I think in terms of um, if if pets are treated as an inanimate object, inanimate object to say that more clearly, you know, the only um, protection that an owner has is like, you know, potentially some kind of monetary compensation if the animal is stolen or destroyed or something, right? Right. Um, because if it's treated like a car, you know, for example, to put, you know, something of even high monetary value, um, there's not a lot of recourse aside from, you know, monetary compensation. However, there's no social safety net that accounts for them as living things with caregiving needs, right? right. And so, right. you know, well... <laughs> When we're speaking about a social safety net, like our country is 
pretty, you know, it seems pretty <laughs> dire in general, right? Like we don't have a great social safety net for people either. Right. Um, but we yeah. even, you know, when we don't consider pets to be part of a family, the social safety net that we do have in place to support families who, you know, potentially need support for like children, for example, right? We just don't have that for pets at all. And they're not really recognized as like, you know, something that people are responsible for uh, in terms of caregiving, right? Makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah, I don't yeah, know more if you want to elaborate on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that there is this notion that having a pet is some sort of it, like it's not a need if they're not a part of the family. Mm-hmm. People aren't allowed to define their family as being inclusive of a pet mm-hmm. unless you have the money to define your your mm-hmm. family as being inclusive of a pet, right? And you have choice in mm-hmm. where you go. I would say I think one and I like I love the reference to or the sort of not comparison, not direct comparison, of course, between children and pets, but one thing from a legal standpoint that does come up is that you know, there used to be discrimination against people who have children right. in rental right. housing. And there used to be discrimination against, you know, all sorts of things. Women, mm-hmm. single women mm-hmm. who couldn't rent on their own, you know, yeah. people of color, mm-hmm. of course. And so I think that anytime there is not a, anytime there's not a law that says, you cannot be discriminated against or charged more on the basis of some factor. Somebody is going to take advantage of that factor. And in this case, we have a system of, and this maybe gets to one of your later questions, David, but we have a system of commoditizing housing, right? Which should be a fundamental right. that Everybody has a place to live. And Mm -hmm. instead we have a system that capitalizes on people's need for a place to sleep at night, for pe- on people's mm-hmm. need for housing. And so naturally, that system is also going to capitalize on people's desire to have the companionship of a pet, unless mm-hmm. there is some sort of legal protection. For example, if that pet is a, a service animal, a landlord cannot charge right. an extra fee or extra rent for that animal. So Mm -hmm. I think that the lack of legal protections for animals as part of a family or animals as sort of this, this right, like the, the, a a person's innate right to own, well, to care for and, and, and be the human of a pet um, Mm -hmm. is, is a problem um, Mm -hmm. because, Right now, that leaves room for people to take advantage right. of that. Mm-hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's so interesting because even in, in us talking about it and, and discussing it, we're still using that language that's kind of coded in um, to, say, an owner or to say, you yeah, know, yeah it's, right. that's so interesting. Right. Um, it's, and it's hard to get away from that language, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, even I work <laughs> in animal welfare and it's just... Yep. It's how you grow up. It's it's your entire mindset. And I think that we're still in the midst of shifting, you know, from that language to other more mm-hmm. accurate uh, language that truly does describe, I think, what we all hope um, companionship with a pet, uh, you know, we'll get to yeah. uh, in the future. Agreed. So, yeah. yeah, definitely. 
Um, so what do you think are the next steps in this kind of research? What, what data are we missing to find a, a really solid cause and effect that will help things like the legislation that you were talking about? I think, you know, better understanding the kind of process by which um, a person is maybe becomes housing insecure or um, is put into precarity, precarity essentially as it like because of this lack of protections because they have this deep bond with their pet, um, for example. Um, so I think maybe some some targeted like qualitative research of that you know really mm-hmm. like maybe ethnographic research even where you know I'm I'm thinking something like. Um, Matthew Desmond's evicted, right? Mm-hmm. Like right. some kind of like deep, deep exploration of um, how how these kind of things play out in the daily lives of of pet owners who are potentially impoverished or marginalized in some other way. Um, I also think it would be really interesting. So my understanding, and Lauren knows more about this, but um, in terms of eviction filings, um, mm-hmm. it's you know you don't necessarily get to the specifics of the causes that led to the eviction uh-huh. or led to the eviction filing. And so in the legal records, you know, you're not going to necessarily find anything in terms of um, a mention of, of a pet being involved in, in a potential like lead up to the eviction filing. Um, but I think there, you know, all signs point to like potentially pet owners who are impoverished otherwise marginalized in some ways are at greater risk of eviction than those who are, you know, maybe don't own pets just because of the, um, the dire need for more affordable housing that allows pets. And so I think if we could get better at that, it kind of would show um, a more direct, you know, as to put it in your language, like cause and effect in terms of like how, how pets maybe uh, relationships with pets could, uh, put someone at more at risk of eviction. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. <laughs> there's so much more. There's so much room for research and, mm-hmm. and on this issue. And I think one of my favorite things about this project has been connecting with people like Jennifer, like other folks in our world that are really keying into housing as sort of a a baseline issue. Yeah. I think my interest for research lie a lot in. What are some best practices that other states are doing? For example, we know that there are states like California that don't allow for any non-refundable fees. And mm-hmm. how does that have any impact on pet-related housing insecurity? Right. Um, I think that there's so many, unfortunately, or maybe maybe that's too harsh, but because we have state-by-state housing laws, every mm-hmm. state is so different in terms of tenant protections in general. So in Texas, we have some of the least protective tenant laws in the country. And as a result, we have a, a high, uh, you know, high eviction rates in, in, in some cities and that don't have local protections. And so I think that my, my research is really, uh, I, or I hope will, will be really geared towards, um, how, how can we relate all tenant protections to animal welfare. So those tenant protections, whether it's what are eviction processes like, what are the notification requirements for whether or not you live in a disaster area in Texas and Houston, we have Mm -hmm. apartment complexes that flood every single year. Well, that impacts animals and pet owners, right? And so 
what about like the right of a landlord to enter your property? Does there have to be a 24 hour notice or the, can they come in whenever they want? So there's this, these myriad basic tenant protections that mm-hmm. I believe are, and I know others would agree are in, intimately related to the broad, to the, the general welfare of a family, which is going to impact the general welfare of that pet. And so really finding stories, finding data that shows that when tenants are more secure across the board, they are going to be able to more easily keep their pets. And I think that's a really important component of turning animal welfare advocates into affordable housing advocates. Mm -hmm. And I think that one particular component of research that I'm working on right now is specifically in subsidized housing. So I think one part of our research that is kind of not covered in this work Mm -hmm. so far is probably, uh, you know, subsidized housing, which isn't Mm -hmm. always advertised on basic apartments rental, you know, search engines. So one of the things that I'm looking into right now are what are the pet policies for low-income housing tax credit properties in Texas? Uh Um, Those kinds of policies that impact the vast majority of the housing that low-income tenants live in isn't being collected anywhere. The government, Mm -hmm. no, no government agencies are keeping track of these pet policies. So there's no real understanding of what policies are impacting our lowest income tenants. And so I think that's a really important component that is missing right now that hopefully we'll be able to fill in some gaps. Mm -hmm. Finally, um, and we've touched on this a little bit, but what kinds of policy solutions do you think would, would help with the disproportionate amount of impact these types of fees have on people who are already struggling? Is it something we can really address now? Yeah. Are the issues too deep and systemic for us to address, you know, on the surface level? I mean, yeah. we've, we've touched on this a little, but. I mean, I can just start and say that I think that non-refundable fees and pet rents should be disallowed. Um, I I, there are states that are already doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we are, or they're at least not allowing non-refundable upfront fees. Um, I think that that is a best practice. I believe that mm-hmm. a security deposit, a pet deposit that is returnable, if the animal doesn't cause any harm um, to the property or damage to the property is more than sufficient. And that if that's not the case, that the, you know, it's not our it's not our responsibility as advocates and as tenants to prove the the you know landlord associations and apartment associations to prove that they don't need that money. You know, there's no evidence coming from that industry saying that that money is needed and is currently being used to do pet related upkeep on a property. So I think <laughs> easy answer number one is mm-hmm. those sorts of those sorts of fees should not be allowed. Um, and then I always have to revert to, we have to be pushing for better tenant protections across the board, um, which I could talk about all day and I won't, because I know that's not (laughs) the exact topic of this conversation. Um, but you know, just one example is in Texas, there is, has been an effort by an organization called Texas Housers. Um, to put, to pass at the legislature what is basically a tenant's bill of rights 
to address some of the most egregious tenant protection issues in the state of Texas. Some and 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 I've you know probably ad nauseum like talked about how all of those issues are animal welfare issues. So I think that from a from a broader perspective, we as a movement have to understand that housing is a baseline issue and Mm -hmm. that tenant protections have to be improved before we're going to see massive improvements in, you know, housing insecurity um, and pet relinquishment. Like before we Mm -hmm. see that correlation, um, you know, be less of an issue. Um, in, in terms of pet relinquishment. Yeah, and I'm going to uh, expand on that just to say that um, in terms of if, are these issues deeper than than animal welfare and, you know, in terms of, like, pet-friendly housing, um, yeah, yes. And um, they, more broadly, you know, we've touched on this a little bit already, but we have this, you know, horrible affordable housing crisis throughout the entire Mm -hmm. country. And so we, you know, thinking beyond families with pets, obviously that's the topic of this research. However, if we can think more upstream in terms Mm -hmm. of the affordable housing crisis in general, and the fact that, you know, subsidized housing wait lists are in most Mm -hmm. cities are, you know, upwards of years long. People, Yeah. You know, can't can't get affordable housing when they qualify for it. Um, and so the precarity that puts families into is just it, it's just something that needs to be resolved in this country um, so desperately. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we need more affordable housing in general. Um, we need more income equality, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. we, we need um, less residential segregation, better funding for public schools, you know? So, I mean, it's hard for me not to, to think much more broadly about these issues. Um, but, I, you know, I, I feel deeply that they're all uh, inherently connected, right? And you, you can't mm-hmm. separate them. Lauren and Jennifer, uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, this was a great interview. Yeah. I had a great time talking with you all about this and hearing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, um, I really enjoyed the paper. I, it's nice to see this kind of research out there. Um, and so thank you. keep doing that awesome work. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This is, a, this is really great. We really appreciate the um, opportunity to talk about our, our findings and some of the broader issues. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having us on. It's been great. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Thanks again to Jennifer Applebaum and Lauren Loney for joining us on the show today. We'll have a link to the paper in the show notes so you can go check it out yourself. As for us, we're a nonprofit that's trying to keep pets and people together, and you can help. Just go to PRCKC.org and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and leave us a review because that always helps people find us. And for the latest news, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at PRR Podcast on both platforms. So until next time, tail wags and purrs to you and yours. And as Jerry Seinfeld said, dogs are the leaders of the planet. If you see two life forms, one of them is making a poop, the other one's carrying a form, who would you assume is in charge? Take care. Mm-hmm.
Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, produced and hosted by Sierra Howe and Dave Shapiro. Written, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro. Music by Hazel Raw Musical Industries, a.k.a. me. More info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Raw Musical Industries. 